We'll hear argument next in uh, Evans versus Chavez. Ms. Chapman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Ninth Circuit decision in the Court below was wrong for three reasons. It adopted a rule that frustrates Congress's intent to protect federal courts from hearing stale claims and to respect the finality of state court convictions. It does so by improperly and arbitrarily adopting a conclusive presumption that misunderstands or ignores state law and practice, and it is inconsistent with this Court's decision in Kerry v. Saffold. If the federal courts, on the other hand, complete their analysis of the federal question of tolling the EDPA statute of limitations by deciding whether a state petition was timely before granting tolling, it can properly dismiss more federal petitions on statute of limitations grounds and can avoid litigating stale claims on the merits. Any difficulties in doing so can be ameliorated by the limited nature of the state law inquiry and adoption of a 60-day presumption of timeliness. But that, that's something where we, we, we would just pick that number, that? The 60 days? Yes, because it's a normal appeal period. Well, Justice Ginsburg, when, when California does look to timeliness in proceeding from one lower court to a higher court, then we see that it contemplates that a, that a uh, litigant will proceed in 60 days or less. Because, and the reason we have to turn to analogies is because nothing in California law requires the appellate courts in state habeas to look to that particular period of time between the lower court decision and, and, and proceeding to that court because they're courts of original jurisdiction. So they look at how long the prisoner proceeded from conviction to their court as a whole. But the reason that we need to figure out this period is because this court in Kerry versus Seffold has said that our system functions enough like an appellate system to bring those periods into the tolling provision. So when well, we look can't the, can't the California courts adopt us, give us a 60-day rule or a 30-day rule or a 90-day rule? And if they don't do it, why should we do it? Up to this point, they have not done so. And I think that is because, as I said, they are looking at the time from conviction, how long did it take the prisoner to get to their court with their claims, and how, how long they take properly proceeding up the ladder through the courts is just one factor that they look at. And I they, don't know how this came about. I mean, I mean, I'm asking both sides the same question. It'll sound very favorable to you. But if you answer it just yes because it's favorable to you, I might learn later I was wrong, and you won't have had a chance to answer it. So I want your honest opinion on this. I don't know how this happened. And I don't know, did you ask for on bank? I'm sorry, how, how the three-year delay happened? No. I don't know how the California court could have read the opinion, which, of course, I wrote for the court, so maybe uh-huh. I am reading things into it that weren't there. But I don't know how any judge could read that opinion we wrote and come to this conclusion. I thought that it said... You know, on that there are three issues. What's the word pending? Does the word pending apply to the time period between when the lower court decides a case and you appeal? That's typically 20 days or 30 days. Correct. Are those 20 days or 30 days counted in the tolling period? I thought part one clearly said the answer is yes. Then we look to California, and they don't have the words 20 days or 30 days. They say reasonable time. And then we said it still applies, because reasonable time is probably 20 or 30 days. They don't have a radically different rule. It's a similar rule. Then we come to Part 3, and it says this is 45 days. There's no four and a half months, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. This isn't just 20 or 30 days. Mm -hmm. So is it timely? And there I thought the court said, I mean, I'm just reading it, say, well, it's hard to say, because there might have been excuses for the delay. What about the words that were written there on the merits? And there was an equitable on, holding question. But that had nothing to do with the case. The lack of diligence had nothing to do with this aspect of the case. But what about the words on the merits? And there what I, I think the court wrote is that the fact that it says on the merits doesn't prove it, it doesn't prove 
that it was timely. Why? And then I listed a bunch of reasons. There are reasons. Sometimes courts say on the merits, even though it's delayed. All right? They say on the merits, or because they want to tell the prisoner. There are a lot of reasons why all of which are listed, so we send it back to see whether this four-and-a-half-month delay, given the excuses, was still timely. All right? Yes, Justice. We now get a case where it's three years. Mm -hmm. And the Court says it's timely because they used the word on the merits. But I thought, I said in the opinion, I thought the Court adopted that the words on the merits do not decide the matter. Isn't it now, what do you do in those circumstances? Justice Breyer, I, I could not agree no, but with did you. Did you ask there. for rehearing on bank? Because any judge, including me, can make a mistake. What did you do? We petitioned for certiorari in this court. And you didn't ask for a hearing on bank? No, we did not. Well, why, when you get a fair, because any judge can make a mistake. Why don't you just go and ask the Ninth Circuit to say, uh, look, this is not, read the opinion, read what they said, correct it. This is not the first time that we have tried to take that approach with the Ninth Circuit on this issue. Um, they, on remand in Saffold versus Kerry, they made the same mistake, and rehearing it got us nowhere, asking for rehearing. And, and so we felt that in order to get this clarified as soon as possible, it seemed futile to ask for rehearing when, on re, when uh, we had not been successful before. Yeah. Well, this, this case is different, actually, from the one that uh, Justice Breyer put. Because in this case, the California Supreme Court didn't say on the merits. It said nothing at all. It just disposed of it. So the question presented is quite different. It's It's whether, not whether it can be nonetheless timely when they say on the merits, but whether it can be nonetheless timely when they don't say anything at all. I would think it's an a fortiori case, in other words. Uh, and, and the Ninth Circuit is treating it as if it were the same sort of decision that was before this court in Kerry versus Saffold. It is a decision on the merits. And they are reading that as excluding any other gr- possible grounds that might have is- existed for the denial in that case. You're representing the Attorney General of California, and you have a lot of litigation in the Ninth Circuit. It's, I mean, the other side's going to answer on the merits if they can. And they're in an awkward position here, I understand. But, but I, I, I need to know what, what to what, — what do you think we should do? I mean, here we write an opinion, and they, it seems to perhaps inadvertently or not. And, and, and the reason I turn to you is judges are busy. They have huge dockets. Yes. And often, unless it's very clearly pointed out by the lawyers or the lawyers take action, you, you get waste everybody's time and money. Well, I, I think the answer is to, to instruct the federal courts that when they're undertaking this inquiry of whether an application is pending during the intervals, a federal question that has a state law component, then they must apply the state law to figure out if it's timely. And, and you know, as this court said in Kerry versus Saffold, it's a matter of whether it's timely. It's not a matter of the basis of the state court decision. And in the context of California, I think the answer is to adopt a presumption of 60 days, because that is the most analogous. In, even if, as he alleged, he was unable to do anything, if, this is a lay person, he said, I tripped in the intermediate appellate court because I didn't do any research. And so I wanted to do better. But they gave me a job where, during the hours that the library was open, Mm -hmm. I had to be at work. And that's why it took me all this time. Mm -hmm. Now, is is that — suppose the the prison locks down someone and says, you can't go to the library. This is an easy decision for the federal court, even on these facts. Okay, this petitioner has taken longer than 60 days, and he's offered an explanation. But if you look at his explanation, on its face, it's completely inadequate to account for a three-year delay because he doesn't take action to get get library access for an entire year after the Court of Appeals decision denying his application is issued. Then he spends three months, quite correctly, going through the administrative procedures of the prison to get a job change. 
And he does, in fact, get a job change three months later, about three months later. Then he waits still more than another year before he files his petition in the California Supreme Court presenting essentially the same claim, same facts, same law. He delays after he gets the library access for an extra year. Yes, he does. Now, now he, is there any excuse they're making for that? Because if you don't, don't Later on. <laughs> later on, once he gets to federal court, he offers the explanation that the prison was on lockdowns. Um, there are several problems with that assertion, the first being it wasn't presented to the state court, so it's, it cannot cure his state untimeliness. The second being that he doesn't offer specific dates or explain how it prevented him from filing his petition. And the third problem is that state prisons provide procedures during lockdowns to get library materials to prisoners. Can I ask a rather probably sort of stupid question, but I gather there are a large number of these cases disposed of by a postcard. Would there be anything wrong if the California Supreme Court said we're going to have two postcards? One says that the delay was unreasonable, denied. And the other said there's nothing to the merits, denied. Use two postcards. Wouldn't that solve all the problems? The, the problem with that is certainly it would solve things, but the problem with that is it would require the, require the California courts to make both of those determinations in every case. And as it is now, they use a procedure much like They could adopt a 60-day rule or a 90-day rule, and then just when, when they decided to not follow the rule, they'd put a check on and say, well, we did look at the merits in this case. They, they could do that. Under our current law, it wouldn't make any difference, would it? Because even if they sent the on-the-merits postcard, Kerry versus Saffold says Correct. it doesn't matter. That's tr- and that is why I say they would have to make both determinations. Well, because they, well it might matter. No, please. I just to say it might matter if they had another postcard that said it's untimely and they didn't send that. That would be a whole different situation, right? That's true, but we are we are engaging here in trying to tell the California state courts how to dispose of these cases, which I am really not sure is an appropriate thing for us to do. They're well, using a procedure. If we, if we decided it, it, it was at least appropriate to give a hint. Um, aren't we in a little bit better position than, than you suggested in, in the light of Kerry? Because, in, is, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought in Kerry the, the state order was not merely that it was on the merits, but that it was on the merits and it was untimely. In other words, it said A and B. And, and, and we said, you know, that's ambiguous to start with. And then we went on and said, you know, sometimes merits don't mean merits. But if the state were to revise its procedure and say, we're either going to say A or we're going to say B, and that's our reason, and, and they said uh, it's on the merits or it's untimely, wouldn't it make sense for us, even in the light of Kerry, to say, okay, we'll accept that as, as the state's reason? If they were to do that, but but I I don't anticipate the state courts adopting that practice because it would double their work. They would have to make both decisions, merits and untimeliness. I don't if, see why. If, 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 they, if, if they're going to follow something like a prima facie 60-day rule and it's, it's on day 65, all they've got to say is it's untimely. Well, in this, in this case, in order to determine it was untimely, they would have presumably had to have gone into the factual analysis of whether the prison was on lockdown, whether he delayed for a year after getting the materials, and all of that stuff. So it's a lot easier for them when the merits of it seem to them absolutely clear to simply deny it on the merits and not reach the uh, the timely question. And that the timely question is still before federal courts. That's, that's what we said in Kerry versus Saffold. So I agree. They that, can avoid it. We can't. And that, and that is the way the state courts are approaching these cases. They, for the most part, will look first for a prima facie case. And much like the federal courts do in, in federal habeas under Rule 4, where they screen for frivolous petitions that can be dismissed outright without asking for a response from the warden or instituting briefing, then they can deny those summarily. And the reason why they cannot just decide timeliness is because then the Ninth Circuit will interpret that as not reaching the merits, and we will have a problem with deference. So if they were to decide one explicitly, they have to decide the other the way things stand now. 
And uh, I, I, as I must a, say, I don't quite follow. Why couldn't they simply say it's untimely? It wouldn't that, that it, there was uh, it was not pending during this period because it three years elapsed and that's unreasonable. Wouldn't that end the case? It would, but but it's not a state law question. They don't whether it's pending during that period is not well, a state law question. I understand, but whether it was a reasonable time to file is a state law question. Whether, whether he re- took a reasonable time from the lower, from time of conviction to their court is the only state law question. Well, because isn't, of doesn't the original. California Supreme Court sometimes decide that the time between the intermediate court's decision and the filing in the California Supreme Court, don't they ask whether that was reasonable? Or they have, only relate it back to the date of conviction. I have only seen one case in California where they specifically addressed that particular interval because the Attorney General raised it. And that's Moss, in Ray Moss, which is cited in the red brief. May I ask that if you had a case in which the Attorney General raised it, say, say this case, and, if, and say California Supreme Court wrote an opinion in which it said, now three years has gone by, but the prisoner has given us a very elaborate uh, explanation, as Justice Ginsburg suggested, and we find that explanation sufficient. Therefore, we conclude that even though it was three years, it was a reasonable time, and therefore we're going to address the merits, and we now address the merits and say you lose. Now, in that case, would it be pending for our purposes? Yes, because the state court found it timely, and that would be it would, that I thought would be that the was end an of the open matter. question, frankly. I mean, I can't imagine California would do this, but I guess if California did say uh, that the period of time between the time you lost in the district court and the time you filed in every other state is 30 days, but in California it's a reasonable time, and what we mean by a reasonable time is three years without any excuses. I guess then maybe the dissent in Kerry P. Saffold would have been right in respect to that. It would have said that that isn't pending under, uh, under federal law, whether California says it or not. So the role of the federal law versus the state law, I thought we left open. I, th- I think this court in Kerry versus Saffold and, and in Pace versus DeGuglielmo has stressed the importance of deferring to state law determination. Uh, you can't state defer to something under the statute where Congress wrote the word pending, and I wouldn't have thought they did have in mind a state okay. that says it's pending, even though you have no excuse and didn't file anything for three years of your appeal. Now, uh, I haven't heard that fully briefed and so forth, so I hesitate to express a final conclusion on it. Well, it's Since it's never going to come up, I don't think. I don't know. I have to have a final conclusion. I don't think so. But it's, pend- it's pending while, if it's timely under state law. And if the state court has already spoken to state law, I don't know that there's a question left for the federal court. I think, I think they say, okay, this was timely and therefore pending during the interval. But now, you want us to apply a presumption that a petition is timely if it's filed within 60 days. But California doesn't apply such a presumption, does it? No, it does and not. Where do we get that? I, I mean, where does that come from? Where that comes from is if you look to the closest analogous state procedure, say direct appeal from a conviction, then you're allowed 60 days to go to the, ne- to the appellate court. Similarly, if the state appeals the grant of habeas relief, the state, unlike the defendant, can appeal then the state gets 60 days. So when California thinks, when California quantifies the concept of reasonableness in the appellate context, they do so in terms of 60 days or less. And I say or less because state habeas is actually supposed to be a quicker process than the appellate Well, shouldn't we leave it to California to adopt such a presumption? California is not going to do that because it's not a state law question. It's just not a state law question. But it's, I think it's acceptable for a federal court to adopt a presumption um, to assist them in deciding a state law issue what, much the what way. Good would the, what good would the presumption do if it's just a presumption? Presumably, if it's a presumption, the prisoner is going to say, well, here's why you shouldn't follow the presumption in my case. Just as if it looks like he's waited a long time, he's going to say, well, here's why that delay was reasonable. I don't know that the presumption you're proposing serves much of a purpose. The value of the 60-day presumption is that it saves the federal court from having to look at 
the state law time of timeliness in that particular case. And no, it, it ought not if the prisoner says, here's why you shouldn't follow the presumption. Well, that's true. But if, it, but if he files within 60 days, there's no need to look further or consider his arguments regarding timeliness. And the other value in the 60 days. Why phrase days, it as a presumption? Why not phrase it? We, we determine California law to be, unless we hear otherwise, having examined what it does in other situations, that 60 days is timely. I think that would be perfectly fair. It's the same thing, but I wouldn't call it a sure, presumption. That's a, and, that's and, then, and then the, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the uh, incarcerated individual can uh, uh, come forward with excuses and say that California would make an exception to the 60-day rule for this. And you're back where we were. Well, that would be fair, and it would accomplish the other thing that I offer the 60-day presumption to accomplish is to, to offer a sort of safe harbor where the petitioner knows that he gets tolling for 60 days and need not file a protective petition. Um, well, so it, it would, alleviates that problem. It would, it would be fair, but to call it uh, a, a finding of California state law is, would be a bit of a stretch, wouldn't it? I mean, you, you made a perfectly good argument that it would be a sensible rule for California to adopt, be sensible for us to adopt. But I'd, I'd have a hard time saying that, uh, that I could justify it as a statement of current California law. Am I, can, am I missing something? Well, Justice Souter, I think it works very well as a presumption adopted by the federal courts for ease of administrability and, you know, at the same time reflecting state law. Okay. So, this, but, so you're but, back to the presumption. But, right, but, but if, but the if one we're going to go further and say, oh, well, we, we find that that's what the state law is, and unless they tell us differently, that's where I, I'm having trouble. Well, it's not very different from when the federal courts adopt a state statute of limitations uh, yeah, but we for know a federal what it, cause We know what it is. There's a state statute of limitations. It says three years. We, well, we don't have anything like that. By analogy, you know that the period of time for seeking direct appeal is 60 days. So it is, it's, it's deciding something by analogy in much the same way the federal courts do for a federal cause of action that has no statute of limitations. How many cases are there on habeas in California every year about? Oh. Well, I mean, about. Just give me the rough ballpark. I would, there are about 8,000, I would say. Right. So the, in the Supreme Court? No, in the Supreme Court, I would say it is more, more like about 2,500. So there are 25, so there are several thousand cases every year. Thousands. All right, thousands. thousands. Okay. So I don't know what I'm doing with California procedure when I pass a, uh, a pass a law is what it would be, write a rule, write a presumption. I have no idea what I'm doing there. They've worked out a system. But I don't, why doesn't it work just to say to the lower courts, do your job? What we said, and maybe it wasn't expressed clearly, uh, maybe, uh, courts, uh, look, it says reasonable time, all right? Now, reasonable time in every other state is 30 days, sometimes 20 days, sometimes the most 60 days. So look and see if it was filed within a reasonable time. That's all. And if California passes some specific thing, says something special about it, of course, pay attention to that. What's wrong with that? They just would do it like they do any other thing of deciding what happens in that is, that is exactly what I would ask this court to do, exactly, is to federal courts take on this federal question of tolling and complete the analysis by applying state law to find out if these petitions were timely filed in merit tolling. Is, is reasonable time the issue, or is it what California would consider a reasonable time? I mean, that's the problem. We're, 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 we're not making up for ourselves what's a reasonable time. If California says a year is a reasonable time, that would be the reasonable time at issue, wouldn't it? I don't think it would be in light, of, in light of the analogous state law that you only get 60 days to appeal. No, but if but the California Supreme Court says, despite all of these, in this kind of a situation, we think a year is a reasonable time. But they haven't said so. The, of course, you, no, but if they said so, if they said that would be binding if on they us, had, If they said so, then we'd have state law and we would have to apply that, but we don't. Why would you have to apply that? It's a federal question whether the claim is pending or not during that whole period, right? Of course, certainly it is. Certainly it is. But at the end of the analysis, there is a little bit of state law analysis. It has to be timely under state law. And if California Supreme Court tells us more about what's timely under their reasonableness standard, then I think you would have to take that into account. But the concept of reasonableness and due diligence that are employed in states in California's 
timeliness standards, I don't think reasonableness and due diligence mean anything different at the federal courthouse in Sacramento than they do at the state court of appeal five blocks away or in this court. These are common terms that are used in the law all the time. May I ask this question? I think your opinion the last time around suggested a possibility was certified to the California Supreme Court, and that was not done. Was any other effort made that you can tell us about, maybe it's off the record, to try to get the guidance of the California Supreme Court on the state law problem here? Has anybody suggested to the court they might adopt a rule or a different practice or anything like that? Your Honor, yes, we have suggested that. The California Supreme Court, and as you said, this is not within the record, but if I may, the California Supreme Court has declined to adopt a rule. They think it's a political question that has to be decided by the legislature. And the legislature to date has not adopted a rule, not a rule, a statute of limitations for these cases. And I have to say that if they undertook that, then there would be certain costs to doing that as well. You know, we would ease this issue, but we would confront the cost of considerable litigation, I would imagine, if we adopted a new statute for collateral relief in California. So there's a cost to doing that that might outweigh the benefits of clarifying this issue. If I may reserve my time. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Stris. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In light of Justice Breyer's questions, I feel compelled to begin with a brief explanation of why this case is a necessary consequence of Saffold. And although it wasn't my initial intention to speak plainly, what I would suggest is that the problem is not the Ninth Circuit's decision in this case, but rather California's timeliness standards. And the problem that's presented by this case is one of federal line drawing. And it presents serious federalism, comedy, and fairness concerns. And if we could step back from the facts of this case for a moment, and I will discuss them, I think it — I hope at least it will become clear that the Ninth Circuit, in light of what it's dealing with in California, adopted the only sensible rule. So the place to begin in answering some of your questions, Justice Breyer, is with California's timeliness standards. And to give some background, I would start with the principle that was articulated in the Warden's brief and that the California Supreme Court has articulated, which is that California does enforce its timeliness standards. It's usually done by — in the summary denial context by citing to In re Swain or In re Robbins. I missed what you said. The problem is California doesn't support or import. I just didn't hear you. Oh, I apologize. I just didn't hear what you said. What I said is that California does enforce its timeliness standards. And the way they customarily do that — And what are those standards, please? Okay. The standards are that a prisoner must file within a reasonable time. And that requires a two-part inquiry, Justice O'Connor. The first part is, was there substantial delay? It's determined based upon a set standard when the delay begins. But California has never articulated any standards for what period of time constitutes substantial. That's the first problem. It's essentially an ad hoc determination that's made by individual California courts. And that's why former Justice Brown described that as an abstraction, and former Justice Mosk described it as vague and indeterminate at its very core. But that's what the Ninth Circuit is dealing with when it reviews these cases. So to put it in context for a moment, the way the State courts do enforce this on a case-by-case basis, to be practical, is the State supreme court often summarily dismisses cases on procedural bars, including timeliness. And to give you some statistics from the warden's brief, in 2004, there were 1,223 unexplained summary denials, in other words, just denied. 
and there were 1,174 denials with a citation to a case. And this is significant because this means that in about half of the cases in 2004 that went to the California Supreme Court, they enforced one of their procedural bars, and in many of them it was timeliness. Wait, a, a, a case that was a procedural bar case? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure I follow the, uh, the question. Well, you, you, you could summarily deny and, and cite a case that showed you were denying on the merits. Oh, what I, what I was suggesting is that there were 1,174 cases that were procedural bar cases, where it said — Where they cited a procedural bar case. That's correct. It would say denied in race Swain, meaning denied for being untimely, as opposed, Justice Scalia, to the 1,223 cases that were unexplained. Now, and then the, excuse me, just one, one, if I may, Justice Breyer. Those, those are the California Supreme Court or California Appellate Court? That's the California Supreme Court. Thank you. Okay. So the difficulty of looking to that, which may be a good difficulty, I mean, that is a serious problem. But I thought what we wrote in the case, so there are two problems here. First, which was bothering me, had to do with our Court's relation to the Ninth Circuit, which may be simple and uh, as far as legally is concerned, but I'm not sure about it. The other, which is much more interesting, is what you are talking about. Right now, on the first one, I read the words. It says the words, on the merits, the Ninth Circuit thought those three words meant that the California Supreme Court could not have considered the petition too late, for after all, it decided it on the merits, just as with the site. Now, whether these words are right or wrong that follow, that's what we wrote. The next words were, there are many plausible answers to this question. Sometimes a court addresses the merits of a claim that it thought was presented in an untimely way. Why? Because they don't present any difficulty and the timeliness issue does. Or because it wants to give the reviewing court alternative grounds for decision. Or maybe it just wants to show the prisoner we thought about the claim on the merits. He, after all, doesn't have a lawyer. He gets a postcard. That helps him. So there are a lot of reasons, and it says, conclusion, given the variety of, 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 of reasons why they might have put the words on the merits, the fact that they're there, those words cannot by themselves show that the petition was timely. So then I read what they wrote. What they wrote is, when the California court denies a habeas petition without comment or citation, we have long treated the denial as a decision on the merits. Okay. And then it cites a pre-carry case. Therefore, the summary denial was on the merits, and the petition was not dismissed as untimely, citing two pre-carry cases. Now, I don't see how, since I just said the words on the merits, do not end the issue. Here, the words weren't even there, but they say we're treating it as if they were, and that ends the issue. So what do we do about that? Then the next question, once I figure that one out, is, is uh, what do we do about the issue you're raising, which is quite important and interesting and so forth? Okay. Well, as to the first question, the, the, the explanation that you just provided clearly requires the federal courts, when there's some indication from the, st- the state court that it might have been untimely, to look into it. And that was the very problem with what the Ninth Circuit did in that case. It said on the merits and for lack of diligence. So to presume that that was just on the merits, that's flatly wrong. You need to do some further investigation. In light of the context of what's happening in California, however, when the state court says nothing, there has to be some process by which the federal court can make a decision as to what that means. Because if, in fact, in that case, it was denied on the merits and the state court thought it was timely, it would be extremely invasive for the federal court to re-review the case, potentially come to a different conclusion, and we would suggest dramatically alter the landscape of how prisoners exhaust their remedies in California, because now you're developing a federal body of law that may be very different in deciding what's substantial and what's reasonable than California did. And so what the Ninth Circuit, I believe, did in this case was look to context and come up with a presumption that was most reasonable in light of what's going on. So the first thing that is relevant from a context... Why is that the most reasonable presumption? Why isn't the most reasonable presumption that the California court denies for untimeliness 
wherever that issue is absolutely clear. The, the answer and where that issue is not absolutely clear and the, and the merits issue is absolutely clear, it just, it just denies. The answer, pardon me. It, it doesn't want to say denied on the merits because that would suggest that it was timely. Uh, the answer I would suggest, Justice Scalia, uh, requires looking to California practice. And where I would start is with the California Supreme Court's decision in In Ray Sanders. And in In Ray Sanders, the Court made clear that after the Supreme Court adopted their policies in 1989 regarding certain presumptions in capital cases, and after the seminal In Ray Clark case in 1993, which asserted, uh, rather articulated California's timeliness standards, most petitions, and these are the California Supreme Court's words, most petitions are timely filed. So with that backdrop and the fact that half of the California Supreme Court's cases are being denied with a case citation, it's reasonable to conclude that the unexplained denials are not necessarily untimely. Now, I would add to that. I don't know what it Most is 51 percent. I mean, um, among those that you don't know whether it was the merits or not, there could be a lot of ones where, where the timeliness is simply not decided upon. It, it's certainly the case, Justice Scalia, that the presumption the Ninth Circuit adopted could permit cases that even the California state courts would consider to be untimely. We could work with that. Now, that's sort of helpful because uh, if they say most are timely filed, then the next question would be, all right, what period of time is it? Well, that's, that's the Well, you'd have to get some professor to go through these cases, and they could, they could uh, figure out how, how long it is. What do you think it is from your experience? I, I can't really answer that, and that's at the heart of I mean, is it more like uh, a month, or is it more like three years? Well, the reason I would suggest that an answering that is not necessarily appropriate or, or helpful in resolving the question is because of the series of cases that we quoted in uh, footnote 15 of our brief. In certain instances, the California courts have found three and a half years, one and a half years, two years to be reasonable. Now, that doesn't because? mean, uh, in one instance, it was because of attorney abandonment. In other cases, it was because the prisoner was indigent. So there's a special reason. In your case, is there really a year that isn't explained at all? Oh, I, I think it would apply to our case as well. Because? In, in our case, the first 15 months. No, forget that. The library I'll give you. What's the rest? A- after that, our, uh, our client was effectively on lockdown and had no access whatsoever to the library. Now, this presents the burden problem with doing any sort of independent determination. The Attorney General suggested in the District Court that there was a paging system in place whereby prisoners who were on lockdown could get access to the library. There was never any suggestion in the District Court on the part of the Attorney General that the lockdown didn't exist. And the Attorney General, and not my client, would have access to those records. Did your client uh, file an affidavit or something saying he didn't have access to the library during the whole period of three years? I I wouldn't call it an affidavit, but it was he filed an opposition to the motion to dismiss. Well, is there anything in the record that says during the year after they said, we'll change your job so you can get access to the library? that he didn't have access to the library? Yes. I, I, well, I, I, he didn't talk about not having access to the library. It's implicit. If you look at the joint appendix. Well, uh, all right. So uh, what's, what's his reason for saying that last year uh, I was not able to file a petition to California Supreme Court? Th- that he had, had had access to nothing. In other words, he didn't say I didn't have so access. what does he say? What does he say? Go ahead. Well, it would be on joint appendix uh, pages 38 and 39 where he describes the lockdown. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't looked at it recently, but my understanding is that he was suggesting that he had had access to nothing, including the prison library. And the, the Attorney General suggests that there was a paging system, but the documentary evidence that the Attorney General puts into the record, which is on pages 68, uh, 67, no, pardon me, 88 through 96, is a prison manual that's dated 2000. Now, it says it's amended, but my client takes the position that this wasn't in, in, in the place at his prison at that time, and that would require a well, evidentiary hearing to determine. that one is on him. I mean, if you say the burden is, is on the state to come up with a, you know, uh, showing that there was such a system, they came up with it. And you say the system may have been amended. Well, if it has been amended, there the burden is on you. Uh, of course. I mean, the burden, uh, pardon me. 
the burden on him would be in the context of an evidentiary hearing, which never took place. The district court in this case didn't reach that issue because they found that uh, statutory tolling wasn't uh, available. The next thing what he actually says here is that the C facility where he was confined was put into lockdown clearly into February 1997. And this is all after he got access. Then it remained quiet and lockdown free until August 11, 1997. So that seems six months on the most generous interpretation, he's that, not in lockdown and he has access to the library. But that illustrates the that's very six months. That's correct, Justice Breyer, and that illustrates the very problem with this case, which is that in cases where there's 90 days, two months, four months, the very difficult questions that a federal court would normally look to state law if it was determinant to apply, California is giving no guidance. And our case falls within that once you look to the particular explanations that our client put forward. And so we would suggest that if there's a concern on the part of the court about certain cases getting through and essentially allowing prisoners to abuse the writ, that this court would use its equitable discretion to look at individual cases and to decide, hey, is this a situation where the behavior is dilatory? Is this a situation where the behavior is abusive? And that would restrict the number of cases where federal courts would need to engage in a factual inquiry. The alternative is adopting a presumption that the Attorney General suggested that the California courts have flatly rejected. That presumption has been adopted, has been imported from the direct appeal context. It has no significance in California habeas law. In the direct appeal context, prisoners have the right to counsel. In the habeas context, they don't accept in capital cases. And unsurprisingly, pardon me, unsurprisingly, the California Supreme Court has adopted a presumption of 90 days in the capital context. So in the, in the non-capital cases, like my clients, where individuals have no incentive to delay. My client uh, has been up for parole twice already. He has no incentive to delay the habeas process. And where people like Mr. Chavez think that they're in good faith complying, and it's not just an issue of excuse, and this goes back to a, to a question that Justice O'Connor asked earlier, there are specific policy reasons why the state of California has adopted the standard that it has. They've articulated. Yeah, just interrupt one, make sure I get one thing straight. The 90 day presumption in capital cases, that is that if it's within 90 days, it's reasonable. Does it also presume that it's a, more than 90 days, it's unreasonable? It presumes that if, if it's within 90 days, it's timely. Right. And then you engage in the inquiry. But that's significant, Justice Stevens, because these individuals are represented by counsel. No, I understand, but, but do they adopt the converse? If it's more than 90 days, is it presumed to be untimely? No, they do not. And they flatly rejected that and found cases where there's several years delay, even in the capital context, to be reasonable. Well, but I could see how they could overcome a presumption that way, but there's not even a presumption that over 90 days is unreasonable. That is correct. There isn't. There you, is you, not. You mean if you go in and you say, um, you know, it's more than 90 days and you bring in no evidence, whatever, of any excuse for being over 90 days, you're telling me the California Supreme Court would accept it? No, that's not true. The, well, the bur- then it bur- is a presumption that's that if correct. it's over 90 days, unless you have a reason, uh, it's, it's untimely. The, the, the burden shifts the prisoner to produce some as evidence. I didn't understand that. So here we have 180 days, 180 days, twice 90 with no excuse at all presented. In the non-capital context, and it's very, it's very different because um, the, the California state courts are, are, are articulating particularly, particular policy reasons for non-capital prisoners to delay. One that they've articulated is a desire to avoid the piecemeal presentation of claims. And this is particular to California's original writ system. You can have a functional appeal, but because it's also an original writ, you, if you have an additional claim that's legitimate, you need to add it in that claim. But once it's in the federal habeas context, the EDPA law suggests there's a great premium paid uh, at stake for, for promptly resolving these things. What do we do about that? This is in the federal court system now. 
If it were the case, and there's no evidence on the record to suggest this, that a substantial number of cases were going to start coming through California with massive delays, and this Court was going to be forced to provide statutory tolling, that would be a problem. But there's no evidence to suggest that. And that ties back well, to the What would we do in that situation? If that started happening? The Federal courts. If that started happening, I think you and this Court would do nothing. I think that Congress would see what was going on, and they'd amend the statute, because that's clearly not what they intended. But that's not this case. Amend just for California when the system is working fine, for all the other States that do have the timelines? I don't think they would do that, Justice Ginsburg. But there's a proposal that I'm aware of already to change the specific language of 2244d2. And it was made by a congressman in California. It doesn't suggest changing it for California. It suggests changing the language. But that hasn't happened. To do what? What would it say? I believe it replaces the word pending with some replacement. And so it essentially changes the tolling provision to account for this problem. But that hasn't happened yet. Right now, we have a congressional statute that, on its face, does not require the Federal courts. About this, you might lose under this. But you say, look, in every other State, the time for appealing from an appeals court to the State supreme court asking them is 20 days normally or sometimes 30. So if the Ninth Circuit gets a case in which it was longer than 30 days, then, irrespective of whether they say on the merits, whether they cite a case, whether they don't say anything and just have a postcard, what the Ninth Circuit should assume that they've done is consider it untimely in the absence of the kind of excuse that the California courts might accept as an excuse. So then they'll look into that. And if California in the future wants something different, which I'd be surprised, they will say that their system means that a 3-year delay or whatever it is, is actually timely. But in the absence of some reason to think that, why not use the words which would give you a chance to go back and you could say this is not a case of total lack of excuse, there is excuse of the kind that California would accept? Well, I think the problem with that sort of rule, Justice Breyer, is that it risks error because California's standard is so indeterminate and at very little, it gets very little benefit because there's no real harm, there's no real harm to the Federal interest here just because we have a conclusive presumption. The very nature of a conclusive presumption is that sometimes there will be cases that don't fit the presumption. But on this record and on anything I've seen from my review of California procedure, there's nothing to suggest that the Federal interest in avoiding substantial delays is compromised by the specific rule that the Ninth Circuit has adopted. And the Ninth Circuit has adopted a rule. How can you say that? We do have a Federal rule and a limitation, and D-2 is an exception for a time that it's pending before the State courts. And if the State courts aren't going to bother to tell us whether something's timely or not or pending, giving them a blank check does undermine the Federal interest behind the one-year limitation period. I would say two things about that, Mr. Chief Justice. The first thing is I would strongly resist your characterization that the State court is saying nothing. I think that in most cases they are saying something, and that in the cases that involve postcard denials, many of them the court is saying that they're timely, and in others those are the hard questions. So I would restrict your characterization to the fact that California is not saying something in some cases. Now, because the Federal statute necessarily imports a State standard, that's a very problem with the statute. I can conceive of many instances where Why do you think the Federal statute necessarily imports a State standard? It says that the State post-conviction proceeding must be pending. And California presents an unusual situation, but we interpret that pending is a question of Federal law. It's not a State standard. That's true, Mr. Chief Justice, but if you took that to its logical conclusion, then when State courts made errors, they didn't see that a case was properly filed. They just missed it. 
the federal court would go in and review. Or in a case where they did claim uh, the, the reverse, the federal court could say, no, there was clear error. But this Court has rejected that in Saffold. It's rejected it in Pace. And because that is informed by the very view that the tolling provision was included to encourage one round of state exhaustion free of federal interference. But we decided, I'd like you to suggest something from putting yourself in the, in an imaginary position. Kerry versus Saffold did have a dissent. And four justices joined it. And let's imagine that when I read the dissent, I see the imagine, and then I look at this case, I see imaginary words on the top of the dissent, which are, we told you so. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, uh, therefore, think not of if you were arguing Kerry v. Saffold afresh, but think of the words that are actually written there. And now think of what happened here. And now propose something, please, <laughs> that will, in fact, deal with the problem that this case seems to present. Well, I would be lying, uh, Justice Breyer, if I didn't say that I haven't thought about that. <laughs> and the problem is that the rule announced in Saffold is the right rule. It's trying to deal with a problem that's been created by the California state courts. And so the, the solution the Ninth Circuit has adopted That's our proposal. We essentially think that it it has a minimal harm to federal interests because maybe certain cases will get in that Congress didn't intend. But if you don't adopt it, there's no alternative. You can't certify the question. In California, you can't certify to the Court of Appeal. You can't certify from a district court. So if the California state courts aren't going to change, it's not incumbent upon this court to read the statute differently than the proper interpretation. And I concede the arguments that were made in uh, the dissenting opinion in Saffold are very interesting. And they don't compel, in my opinion, a different interpretation of the statute. They recognize the difficulty that the statute presents. And it presents that difficulty because it does incorporate in some measure a state standard and because there's one state out there, California, that's doing something that's very difficult to deal with. May I ask this, uh, two questions about California? Uh, is the problem we're discussing with these long delays primarily in the application, the third range, the application of the California Supreme Court as opposed to the lower courts? Uh, well, I, I, I wouldn't characterize it as, as a problem because, like I said before, I don't think that — It is the condition that there is that long delay. That primarily occurs in the, in the application of the State Supreme Court, is it? I, I have no uh, — I've seen no specific evidence to be able to answer that with, with any citation, but my understanding, uh, Justice Stevens, is that that makes sense because it's the last — process that the prisoner is going to be able to engage in, then they'll have to go to the federal My second question is, have have we decided, or is it as a matter of common practice in California, that the application to the California Supreme Court is necessary in order to complete the exhaustion? Uh, It is is necessary, um, in my opinion. I don't know if if this Court has ever decided that. There cases where there's direct review, but this is a different sort of animal that you have in California. But once you start from the premise that these are functional appeals, which they are, um, I don't see how you could read EDPA any other way. I mean, EDPA says that if there's an available uh, method to challenge and a petition, whether it be by review or original writ, to the California Supreme Court would be available. So you could be sure uh, that if Prisoners didn't file. Yeah, they didn't file. They'd get kicked out of federal court. There's there's one aspect of SAFL that you haven't addressed. We we, we not only said what we said about their saying on the merits, we actually cited a case that that involved exactly the situation here, namely Welsh versus Newland, a a CA-9 case from 2001. And we cited that as an example of how the Ninth Circuit rule, quote, risks the tolling of the federal limitations period, even when it is highly likely that the prisoner failed to seek timely review in the state appellate courts, close quote. I, I would say two things about how, that. How could the, 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 the Ninth Circuit here simply have ignored that criticism of exactly what they did here? Well, I don't believe they ignored it, Justice Scalia. And if you look at the Welsh case that you're referring to, on en banc rehearing, the, the en banc panel reached a very different result. They didn't reach the issue of timeliness for the reasons I described, but they determined that that was not a functional appeal. 
because we, the, the claim — We didn't cite the in-bank decision. We cited the panel decision. The in-bank decision occurred after your, your after. case. After. But, but the point is we criticized the panel decision in, in Welch, which did exactly what this panel did here. I don't agree with that characterization, Justice Scalia. I believe that case was included to illustrate that this Court thought that was probably too long and that not looking at all to what's happening in the California system risks that. I don't think anything was at least necessary to the holding in Saffold. We cited it for the proposition that it, as an example of how the Ninth Circuit rule, quote, risks the tolling of the Federal limitations period even when it is highly likely that the prisoner failed to seek timely review in the State appellate courts. That's what we cited. That, that is true. And in the context of a case like Saffold, where there's a reference to lack of diligence, that risk is too great. I'm not going to get up here and suggest that there's no risk to a conclusive presumption that some cases are going to make it into Federal court that Congress didn't intend. But it's a balancing that's inherent in the notion of Federalism. There's a risk that by not reviewing clear statements by the California State Court that cases get in that shouldn't. A case could not have been properly filed, and the State Court didn't find it. But in Saffold and in Pace, this Court announced the principle that once the State Court decides, that's the end of the matter. And I guess in summation, what I suggest is that atmospherically, this case presents a difficult problem. The Ninth Circuit is involved. There is a 5-4 decision in Saffold. We recognize those things. However, there is no easy solution. The Ninth Circuit has adopted a rule that balances the very interest in federalism that the tolling provision was intended to preserve, and there's no suggestion that some corresponding federal interest is compromised. And in fact, if the federal courts are required to review these cases, they'll be required to do it in 60 days, in 70 days, in 80 days. And if they make a mistake and they find a case to be untimely that the California court didn't, will deprive first federal habeas when Congress didn't intend. That's fundamentally contrary to the purpose of AEDPA. Thank you, Mr. Stris. Ms. Chapman, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you. Of course there's a federal interest at stake here. It's the federal interest in the federal courts not having to deal with stale habeas claims in federal court. Um, one thing I'd like to address is the capital case presumption, which is now, <clears throat> excuse me, 180 days. It's been changed from 90 days. That presumption is for, from the filing of the reply brief to filing an initial petition in, Cal- in California court. That is your first habeas petition. That you only get presumed timely for 180 days. Here we're talking about non-capital cases going just from taking claims that have already been presented in one petition to the next level. So in no- 180 days from what? From the filing of the, the, the final due date of the filing of the reply brief well, I mean, in the direct file the reply brief in the lower court, maybe the <laughs> judge will take four months to decide it. What, what, what's the relation? I don't understand that. Or maybe it'll take two days to decide. I think, I think they, I think they date it from the filing of the reply brief because- Why? What would the theory be? I don't understand. Because they like to see these claims presented along with the appeal to be, de- so that they can possibly bring them together and decide habeas claims in light of the record on appeal. So I think that's why they date it from filing of the reply brief. So, so a judge, you file it on day one, you file it on April 1st. And then the judge decides it in August. Or it's September. And, and now it's only three days before the six months, you have to file your appeal like in three days. That wouldn't make sense. And the converse would Well, you're not, you're generally not supposed to be waiting. I mean, you were talking about claims such as You can't file an appeal before, oh, maybe you can in California. You're going to file the appeal before the lower court decides it? Well, if we're talking about capital cases here, they are filing their appeals directly in the California Supreme Court, similarly with their habeas petitions. Even, even, before, even before they get a lower court decision? There will be no lower court decision. They don't at all. In other no, words, they no, no, don't no. at all. No, they go straight to California Supreme Court, which brings up one point, which is that the problem that we're looking at here in deciding timeliness will not arise in capital cases. We will not have that problem because capital cases go straight to the California Supreme Court. There are not going to be intervals between the courts to deal with. 
So that simplifies, I think, the problem a little bit. Um, the, the other thing I'd like to address is the argument that the state court is saying something with these summary orders. I strongly disagree with that. They, they are absolutely saying nothing. Uh, this court said in Yilts that the essence of an unexplained order is that it says nothing. It does not say this is a timely petition. Well, the ones that would cite a case that threw out a petition because it was untimely, uh, and we were told there were over a thousand of those every year, that would be saying something, wouldn't it? That, that is, in the California Supreme Court, you will find that sometimes, that they will indicate untimeliness by a case citation, hardly ever in the lower appellate court. And, and I would also disagree with the characterization of delay being a problem going from the lower appellate court to the California Supreme Court. We see it at both levels. And I would also disagree that this shouldn't be a problem because these petitioners have no incentive to delay. That may be the case that they don't have an incentive to delay, but they do, in fact, sleep on their rights, as Mr. How, how often did. do you, as the Attorney General, what period of time after the district courts made a decision and now they've now filed their claim in the Court of Appeals, how long is it before you say it's untimely? We would, we would say anything over 60 days. Yes, Your Honor. I see my time is up. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Chapman. The case is submitted.